Our guest today on Ask a Lawyer with me, Steve Sleeper, is Maxwell Hiltner with Hiltner Trial Lawyers in Akron. His job is to look out for your rights, and he takes that responsibility very seriously. I began the interview by asking Max what a person should look for in a good criminal defense lawyer. I think the first thing they need to look at is how that person's communicating with them, you know, right from the get-go. You know, who's answering the phone? Um, You know, when you call up the lawyer, you know, how are they communicating with you? Are you going through three different secretaries or do you have direct access to the lawyer? Because, you know, when you're handling someone's case or you're the client, you're going to have a lot of communication with this lawyer for the next year or so. So with me, I mean, I give everybody my personal cell phone. I'm available 24-7. You know, I have two secretaries and another lawyer that work for me. But when people are calling looking for a lawyer, they get me directly. So. Well, let me ask this. Let, let's say, uh, for instance, I've uh, I got arrested for a DUI. Can't I just go and talk to the prosecutor about it? You could. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it because anything you say, even when you're representing yourself to the prosecutor, can be used against you. So, I mean, you could be advocating, you know, for yourself while talking to the prosecutor, and anything you say, they're going to use against you in court. Whereas me, a lawyer, if I'm advocating on your behalf to the prosecutor, nothing I say can be used against the client in court. You know, oh, okay. it's, a, it's an admission in judicata, which just essentially means, you know, it, it's 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 me saying something that, you know, you've communicated to me. It's not it's nothing they can use against you in court. Well, I guess while I'm talking about DUIs, I'll just uh, kind of keep going down that path. So um, let's say I've been pulled over on suspicion, do do I have to submit to any of the tests they want to give me? No. So, and I'm talking specifically Ohio law and, and West Virginia law. So I'm, I'm, I'm licensed in both those states. So I can't speak to all 50 states, but I would imagine it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Pretty much the only thing you have to do is identify who you are and you have to get out of the vehicle. You know, if they ask you to get out of the vehicle and that's like an officer safety exception, but you don't have to do any of the field sobriety tests. You don't have to blow. You don't have to answer any of their questions about where you're coming from, where you're going. Did you have anything to drink? Um, you know, what I tell people is, you know, don't walk, don't talk, don't blow, um, which basically means just don't, you know, be cooperative, meaning, you know, don't resist, <laughs> yeah. you know, the arrest or anything like that. You know, don't obstruct the officer in their job, but don't make it easier for them you know, to do their job, which is to convict you. Um, You know, it's very rare um, to get a conviction on an OVI where the client refused all breathalyzer tests, refused all field sobriety tests and denied drinking. I mean, it's just, there's basically no evidence. OVI is one of those very few or DUI is one of those very few crimes where we typically voluntarily give all the evidence to the state they need to convict us. And we don't have to do that. Do you have to blow or do any tests down at the uh, station? I know some te- uh, states have intoxilizers, and uh, uh, it can mm-hmm. work against you if you don't uh, uh, blow into that at the station house. 
Yeah. So that's a great question. So again, I'll, I'll use Ohio as an example. You know, when you get your license in Ohio to drive, you sign what's called implied consent, which means your, your consent is implied. Um, if you're pulled over and suspected of drinking and driving, you've got to give a urine sample or a blood sample or a breast sample if requested by law enforcement. And if you don't, they're going to suspend your license. Now that scares a lot of people. They hear, Oh, if you don't blow, um, your license is going to get suspended for a year. But what they don't tell people is if you do blow and you blow over, your license is getting suspended for a year anyway, and you're getting convicted of a DUI. So, oh, okay. I okay. mean, you know, I, what I tell people is, hey, I, don't blow, you know, don't do the urine test, don't give blood, um, you know, and worst case scenario, your license might be suspended for a year for refusing, but there are defenses to that. But that's worst case scenario. I mean, odds are you're not going to get convicted of a DUI. So, I mean, why, again, why voluntarily give the state all the evidence they need to convict you? Now, let's let's talk Ohio and West Virginia, because you you mentioned OVI and, uh, uh, you know, some states have a uh, OVI or uh, OWI or whatever. Uh, Is it is it OVI in Ohio and is it DUI in West Virginia or uh, tell me about that? Yeah, so we call it OVI in Ohio. Um, and I believe West Virginia still refers to it as DUI. I do a little, I do a lot less in West Virginia than I do in Ohio, but yeah, basically they mean the same thing. Yeah. It's just semantics. So generally if I'm found guilty of, of an OVI, DWI, DUI, um, will, will I have to do jail time if it's a, a, a first offense? So in Ohio, there's what's called mandatory minimums for OVI convictions. Um, so an OVI DUI in Ohio is punishable by anywhere from three days to 180 days in jail and a one-year license suspension. So um, in the jail, doesn't have to be jail if, it's, if you're a first-time offender for a, a DUI. Um, they let you do the three days in what's called a driver intervention program. And that's just like at a hotel, there's a bunch of programs that they put it on where, you know, they get like 50 people to sign up per weekend. You spend 400 bucks, you stay in a hotel for the weekend, and they counsel you on the dangers of drinking and driving. And that counts as your three days in jail. Do cops make procedural mistakes on on the pullovers for for, uh, OVI? Oh, yeah, all the time. So, you know, that's one of the things that we focus on. When we get hired on a case, the first thing we do is we look at the purpose of the stop. Did they have reasonable suspicion to pull our client over? Because if they didn't, then everything that happened after that gets thrown out. It doesn't matter if they found a body in the trunk. You know, if there was no lawful reason to seize you, to stop you, then everything that happens after that is inadmissible in court. You know, then the second thing we look at is, did they have probable cause to arrest? So, you know, was it more likely than not that you were driving intoxicated? Um, so that's where we file a lot of pretrial motions, attacking the stop, attacking any searches, attacking the administration of the standardized field sobriety test, the officers screw up on those a lot. So we file motions to suppress, motions to dismiss based on all those procedural errors that they can make. And a lot of times that helps us, you know, get a good reduction for our client or dismissal, or sometimes just points out the flaws of the prosecutor, you know, and, and they give you a reduction. I've got a client in Mississippi and with DUIs there, they don't, uh, 
they don't allow plea bargains. They allow plea bargains on every other kind. They have to do plea bargains on every other kind of charges. But uh, but DUIs, what's what's it like in Ohio? So in Ohio, it's literally just based on the individual court. Um, so, I mean, there's courts that I know that you just don't get a reduction on a DUI ever. Um, you know, there's a handful of courts that I know that are like that. I'd say the vast majority, though, if you don't have any priors, first time offender, and we find a good issue um, with the case, like maybe the stop is sketchy or the search is sketchy or the administration of the field sobriety test is sketchy, um, you know, we, you can get a reduction. That's probably in the majority of jurisdictions you can get a reduction. But again, that's why, you know, if, if you refuse the field sobriety test, if you deny drinking, and if you and if you don't blow, I mean, what's the evidence of intoxication? A lot of times it's, oh, you drove over one of the lines or you were speeding or you rolled a stop sign. I mean, that's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt that you were intoxicated. So, well, let's get back to uh, criminal defense in general. What, what what's the process after criminal charges are filed in court? So, I mean, if, if we're talking, you know, misdemeanors, sometimes it's just you know, you get cited with a ticket and you show up to, to court and you either plead not guilty or guilty and then you move on. If you have a felony, I mean, you could get bond, um, you know, say you're charged. I do a lot of like sexual assault cases, like rape cases um, and murder cases. So, I mean, on a murder case, you might get a bond that's a million dollars, two and a half million dollars or no bond. Um, same thing with a rape case. So when you get those cases, you know, the first thing I want to do is is voluntarily turn my client in if charges have been pressed because, that's a good sign to the court that, hey, look, you don't need to set a high bond for this guy because he voluntarily turned himself in. He's cooperating with the process. And then once you enter the not guilty plea, you get a bond set. And then from there, there could be one pretrial. There could be 20 pretrials where it's you and the prosecutor talking. Sometimes you, the prosecutor and the judge talking on, on what the proper resolution for the case is. So, I mean, in the process could take could take years. It could take months. It could take weeks. It just depends. Dependent depends on what it is. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between uh, a state and federal criminal charge? Talk about that. Yeah. So if you, if you charge with a state offense, what they're talking about is you violated a state law, like you violated Ohio law or you violated West Virginia law. And those are crimes that occur within the jurisdiction of those, those states. When you're talking federal, you violated federal law. Um, so obviously the federal system has its own codes. Typically when you see federal charges, there's, there has to be some sort of nexus in interstate commerce. So like you see a lot of drug trafficking or drug conspiracy cases where drugs are going over state lines or phone calls are going over state lines, um, or wire fraud, bank fraud. You see a lot of financial crimes where, you know, there's, there's wires being done throughout the United States or the world. I mean, that, that gives federal jurisdiction to all those. So uh, the federal system is just much more stringent. It's it's just a much more buttoned up process, in my opinion. The stakes are a lot higher generally. It's a much less forgiving system. Um, like in in you know the state court, first time offenders, you know, you could get into some sort of diversion program or treatment program. Those things exist in federal court, but they're just not used in my experience. So I mean. You get charged with a federal felony and you're you're get convicted. It's staying on your record for the rest of your life. Is there probation in federal? 
Yeah, there's probation. So, I mean, yeah, I've had uh, the vast majority of clients that I've had in federal court got probation. So it's just different. So in state court in Ohio, you know, based on the the, the degree of felony, um, you could be looking at, you know, X amount of months in prison. It'll give the judge like a range of like 12 to 18 months or 18 to 36 months. In the federal system, they use something called the sentencing guidelines. Um, so it's all a point system. So each crime is X amount of points and X amount of points is this range of months in prison. But the judges in state and federal court have a lot of discretion. I mean, they can pretty much, unless there's mandatory time, um, the judge can give you probation. I mean, I've had guys that were, you know, charged with offenses. They're looking at, you know, five, 10, 15 years in prison, but there's no mandatory on some of these um, where the, the guideline recommendation was, you know, a decade and they got probation. Um, it's just, that's where good advocacy, you know, comes into play and having a, a, a redeeming, you know, client who's you know, either getting treatment or is accepting responsibility and, you know. Yeah, there we go. Plea bargains, are those used a lot in the courts you go to? Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything resolves in a plea bargain. I mean, uh, you know, 99% of cases plea out and don't go to trial. And I think that's just, it's just a necessary evil. And I say evil because it's a lot of times you're pleading to something you didn't do. Like, you know, it could be a, a domestic violence case that gets reduced to a disorderly conduct or, you know, or a murder case that gets reduced down to a manslaughter. I mean, it could not actually fit the facts of the case, but it's a middle ground that the prosecutor can live with, the client can live with. And, you know, the clients have a lot of risk in going to trial and, if you lose, I mean, you could be going away for decades, right. you know, whereas if you get a plea bargain, you could have a guaranteed sentence where, Hey, look, I'm going to do these 18 months and then I'm done. It's behind me or probation, you know? And, uh, no contest, uh, plea come back to haunt me. Not really. I mean, and a no contest plea, you're basically, you're, you're not admitting any guilt. You're just admitting the truth of the facts that are alleged against you. And, and you're admitting that there's enough evidence to convict you. Say, for example, you, you get charged for killing somebody in a car accident. You get charged criminally. You could enter a no contest plea to that. And if somebody sues you down the road, they can't use that no contest plea against you. You know, they can't point to that court case and say, oh, you pled guilty because you did. Now, if you pled guilty, they could use that against you. But a no contest plea, they can't. They just have to relitigate that. But I mean, the sentence is still, it doesn't, a no contest plea versus a guilty plea doesn't affect the sentence. It doesn't affect the charge. It doesn't affect the potential, uh, you know, range of penalties. It's just to protect you civilly later on down the road. Okay. Okay. What's the difference between a dismissal and an expungement? So a dismissal would mean um, you were charged with an offense but we're not convicted and it was dismissed. So either it was either dismissed for a lack of evidence. It could be dismissed as part of a plea agreement, but yeah, basically there was no conviction, no sentencing and expungement is uh, an expungement and sealing are kind of used interchangeably. Um, but in Ohio, basically what that means is you were convicted of an offense um, and a certain amount of time has passed since you were convicted of that offense. And the law allows you to wipe your record clean. Um, so you know, in Ohio, you know, depending on the felony, sometimes it's three years, sometimes it's five years, you got to wait. Also, only certain offenses are expungible. Like most violent felonies are not expungible. 
nothing higher than like an, an F1 or F2 is expungible, you know, that sort of stuff. Our guest on Ask a Lawyer is Maxwell Hiltner with Hiltner Trial Lawyers in Akron, Ohio. His website is HiltnerTrialLawyers.com, and his phone number is 330-475-3164.